It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. guest today has done uh, what perhaps some of you, maybe many of you have dreamed of doing, which is write a book. Not just any book, mind you. Um, Our guest today has written a crime book, a true crime book. I don't know how he found time to do it. He's a lawyer in North Carolina. I think he's in North Carolina. I know he's a lawyer. Lawyers aren't really known for having lots and lots of spare time. So how did he pick the right crime to write about. It's not his first book, but but the one I want to ask him about. How did he pick this crime? And if you are familiar with the crime, which I was somewhat familiar with it, but you may not be, you're going to need to read the book or otherwise familiarize yourself with facts. Uh, some of the cases emanating out of this crime have been to trial. Others have not. But it is rare when you have a combination of lawyers and dentists and otherwise prominent families involved in a true murder for hire. So with that, let's bring in counselor Stephen Epstein, lawyer and true crime novelist. Thank you, counselor, for joining us. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. You are welcome. I'm going to get the hard question out of the way first. How in the world do you have time to write novels? I mean, you still have a law practice, right? I do. How do you have time to do that? If you love what you do, you make the time. That's it. Well, man, that's true with me in golf. I do make time to play golf, but I can do that in about four hours. My guess, how long does it take you to write to write a book? Every, everyone is different. Suffice it to say, it was at least a couple of thousand hours to write this one. Well, so I've written three so far. You have written the genre that I want to write, but I didn't do that. I wrote what I think are called self-help books, how to ask questions, how to make decisions. It is a grueling process. So again, you'd be stunned at the number of lawyers who talk about writing books, other folks who talk about writing books. Do you start with an outline? How do you start writing a book? Well, I first have to have the idea. What am I going to write about? And so that's that's where it all begins and decide that the idea is book worthy, that enough people are going to be interested in reading about it and that it's going to fill more than 30 or 40 pages. Uh, so got to get that idea and then decide what does it look like? How does it flow? I do not outline. A lot of writers outline. I am what's more, more a pantser right by the seat of my pants. And uh, when I form what I think is chapter one, I start writing chapter one. And then I just keep going until I think I'm at the end. And hopefully there's something good in between the pages. All right. I want to ask you one more process question, just because I, I find it fascinating. You're a litigator. Yes. Uh, I don't know whether, I mean, do judges ever say, okay, you got 30 minutes to give your opening statement or, or do your judges kind of let you take the amount of time you need to take on opening and closing? I practice today mostly in family court. So almost all of the times I'm in court is before family court judges. And in Raleigh, North Carolina, we have extremely crowded dockets. We sometimes have all of two hours to try an entire case. So yes, we're under the gun. All right. And if you do any appellate work at all, there are really strict time limits. Yes. So as a lawyer, you are almost trained to be, and you, people can't see what I'm doing with my hands, but making things more concise. You are trained to say it quicker, more efficiently. With writing novels, it is almost the exact opposite. You talk about the idea, you probably could summarize probably the facts of this murder case I'm going to ask you about. You could probably do it in five minutes. No question. But there are no five-minute-long books. So how do you go from you know, making things more concise to saying, I've got to come up with 70,000, 75,000, 80,000 words? Yeah, and this last one was 120,000 words, so it's a lot more than that. 
um, you're you're looking to fill in all of the things that people are interested about. So they're not just interested about that a gun went off, two bullets went in somebody's head, he was found, and they finally figured out who did it. They're interested in who are these people? How do they relate to one another? Why would someone have decided somebody needed to be killed? That takes some time to explain. So that's more than an elevator speech. Do you find yourself uh, fascinated, revolted by the by the psychology of it? Now, you ask a lot of questions that I think many, many, many people would ask. The one that I had popping through my head is, what in the world makes you think you can get away with this? I'm sitting there thinking, otherwise smart people thinking, I'm the one who could get away with this. And that's not my angle. There are folks who are in that field who do write in the true crime sphere um, who are much more focused on the psychology of the killer. Um, I write more with a legal bent. Now, what is the legal process and how does the person who's ultimately charged with the crime eventually have to pay for what they've done? Uh, so I don't get deep into the mind of the killer and try and figure out how the people involved in this crime, and there are several of them, thought they could get away with it. They left a lot of popcorn on the trail for investigators to find. Even if you don't write about the quote, how did they get away with it? Do you ever, does it seep into other aspects of your life when you immerse yourself in criminality? Do you, do you find yourself becoming more, more jaded, more cynical, more on the lookout, or, or is it just writing a book and it doesn't impact the rest of your life? No, I do divorce work, and every one of my cases stems from a, from a relationship that went haywire. And every initial consultation I have, uh, I in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this could be one of my books if this person went a little bit off the rails. It doesn't take much, and people in that sphere where they have a bad relationship, uh, whether they're already divorced, thinking about divorce, whatever. Uh, the amount of emotion that they experience on a daily basis is enough to drive anyone to do uh, what some killers do. All right. We have all the ingredients. We have love or whatever the opposite of that there is. We have children involved. We have in-laws involved. Give us the opening statement in State of Florida versus the killers of Professor Dan Markell. All right. So Dan Markell was a highly decorated law professor who was actually Canadian. He grew up in mostly Toronto, uh, emigrated to the United States to go to Harvard, where he went undergrad and eventually looped back there for law school after both a fellowship and a master's degree at Cambridge. Really smart guy. Um, he eventually fell in love with a woman named Wendy Adelson. Wendy was from South Florida, a place called Coral Springs, the youngest of three children, the only girl. Um, and she grew up basically in a family of dentists. They had a dental practice called the Adelson Institute near where they lived. Um, she was also very smart. Um, she was valedictorian of her high school. Um, she went to Brandeis, uh, ironically, also in the Boston area. Uh, she also went off and did a fellowship, a distinguished fellowship, and then also went to Cambridge to get a master's degree, and then wound up at the University of Miami Law School. She was at the University of Miami Law School when she reached out on J-Date uh, with her mother looking over her shoulder at the computer screen to a guy named Dan Markell, who by that point had finished a clerkship on the Ninth Circuit and was working for a boutique law firm in Washington, D.C., and they met online and eventually formed a long-distance relationship where they were commuting either from Miami to D.C. or vice versa, and eventually, they decided they were going to make a go of their relationship. Dan wanted to be a law professor. The best gig he could find was at Florida State in Tallahassee, a place neither of them had ever been before, even though Wendy was a native Floridian. They wound up settling there actually before they even got married. Um, and Wendy finished her legal, her legal degree, her law school degree at Florida State University. And she wound up getting the degree from University of Miami, but she was actually physically on the ground in Tallahassee. Neither of them wanted to remain in Tallahassee. This was not the goal of either of these individuals. But Dan thought he would land a job somewhere else, that this would just be a stepping stone. And he promised Wendy, we'll get out of here as soon as I can. They had two kids. Um, uh, Benjamin was born in 2009. Lincoln was born in 2010. And by 2012, they still hadn't gotten out of Tallahassee. The relationship had soured. And Wendy 
basically in the dark of night while Dan was at NYU, she left divorce papers on the bed and she moved out and she took the kids with Dan came back to an empty home that was mostly pillaged. Uh, a lot of the furniture was missing. The alphabet letters on the walls of the kids' room were literally ripped off the wall. You could see the plaster all over the wall from where those letters had been ripped off. Wendy didn't tell him where she had moved to. She didn't tell him where the kids were. Turned out she was about five miles away. They eventually met. He eventually got to see the kids. Uh, but it was very nasty. And it went from bad to worse because back in South Florida, Wendy's family wanted Wendy to move back home with the boys. And Dan, of course, said, I'm their dad. Uh, this is where I work, and you're not allowed to move with my boys. So Wendy filed. Uh, not only had she filed a divorce petition, she filed for custody, and she filed to relocate with the boys to South Florida. All right, let me, let me stop you right there. I, Florida's a big state. I know Tallahassee's a long ways from Miami, long ways from Coral Gables. A uh, home of FSU. Okay, maybe it is not West Paul. Maybe. I still don't know that it's worth like ripping out the alphabet off a kid's wall, though. I mean, living in Tallahassee may not be like living in West Palm, but it's not worth all that, is it? But there had to be mo something more to the. All right, she wants to go be closer to her parents. Is he like tracking tenure? Is that why he wants to stay at FSU? He's already got tenure by this point. He's become very prominent um, in the legal academy. He's a criminal uh, punishment theorist. Um, he speaks all over the world. He's written law review articles in every major law review. And he's, he's hot stuff on the FSU faculty. By the way, Wendy herself winds up on the FSU law faculty. She's a clinical professor, and her area is human trafficking. And she's getting a little bit of notoriety in the area of human trafficking. Problem is, is that she is absolutely living in the shadow of Dan Markell. He is hot stuff. She is a clinical faculty member. He's extremely smart and is afraid to let people know that. And that happens on a daily basis inside their home. And Wendy has enough. They're also, the interesting thing is they're both Jewish. And yet religion was one of the things that was destroying their marriage more than anything else. Dan was a very devout Jew. He enjoyed all the cultural aspects of being Jewish, and that included keeping kosher at their home and including attended, attending temple. Wendy didn't want to have anything to do with those things. And it caused all kinds of arguments and fights between them. Wendy's family actually thought that Dan was indoctrinating the kids into becoming little Hasidic Jews, and they couldn't stand it. They, they, they wanted Wendy out of the marriage even as much as Wendy wanted out of the marriage. And at the, at the beginning, that didn't have anything to do with Tallahassee. But as they separated... That became mission number one, to get out of Tallahassee and back to South Florida. And they eventually had a hearing before a family court judge that Donna poured all of the family resources into. Donna was there and Wendy lost. She wasn't permitted to move. That was one year prior to two bullets winding up in Dan Markell's head. July 18, 2014, the um, car pulls in. Dan is pulling into his garage. Uh, seconds later, bullets are fired. The car leaves. And uh, Dan Markell is dead in his Honda Accord in his garage in an upscale neighborhood in Tallahassee. And that's when the murder investigation begins. You're listening to the Trey Yachty Podcast. More of my conversation with Stephen Epstein coming up. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. All right. Your background is in family law. Mine is not. So I'm going to have to rely on you for this. Maybe you lose a close case on whether or not you can move to Miami uh, based on uh, a difference of religious beliefs or what have you. It's a close case. The judge rules against you. Being involved in the murder of your children's father does not strike me as a close case. So so if you're going to go that route, and I know she has not been charged, I'll ask you about that later on. She's not been charged, probably never will be charged. Although I think she was she mentioned as a conspirator? In one pleading, she was. Okay. All right. And you mentioned Donna. Donna is Wendy's mother, correct? Yes. Also she was there at the beginning of the relationship, looking over Wendy's shoulder when Wendy was on J Date. And her fingerprints are all over everything that happened on July 18, 2000. 
uh, well, this would be a great time. Okay, so Wendy has not been charged with conspiracy to solicit murder for hire. In fact, she's testified in the two trials that have occurred under use immunity. She was actually one of the prosecution witnesses. In exchange for... for Use immunity. Use immunity, right? You can still be charged, but not based on what you see. Correct. In a minute, I'm going to ask you about something her later boyfriend remembered that she forgot, which struck struck me as a pretty big thing to remember. Um, I can't recall his name, but I... Jeff Lutas. All right. So where we go now is they've gone to court. A judge says you can't move the kids, you know, 500 miles away or however far away Tallahassee is from Miami. Can't and that's it. seven and a half hours by car. So just think about the, during the during the year that got to that point, Donna Adelson is going back and forth by car seven and a half hours virtually every week to help Wendy with the kids. She's got the tug from her family member. She's the office manager of the Adelson Institute. Her husband is the main dentist of the practice. Her son is a periodontist at the practice. And she's going back and forth virtually every week, seven and a half hours each way. To help with the children, right? Correct. To help Wendy with the kids. And she thinks Dan is responsible for all of this. And Dan should just say, you know what? It's fine to move the kids to South Florida. I've never met a poor dentist or periodontist. I mean, she didn't have to be the one driving up to help. She could have gotten somebody to help, couldn't she? They were her grandbabies. And they were as as much kids to her as they were to Wendy. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right. So we've been to court. You can argue Dan won, although my guess is the kids won. I mean, I guess that my guess is that's the way the judge. They got it. to remain in the community in which they had been raised up until that point as uh, at that point, they were only three and two. All right. So what next? I go home. I've lost the court hearing. My kids are young. It's going to be quite some time before they can tell the court what they prefer. So what happens? Well, Donna, Donna's not done. Donna still thinks she can win this thing. Even though the court said no, she's going to persuade Dan uh, through any means necessary that he's going to allow those kids to move to South Florida. And she starts an email campaign to her daughter saying, we're not done yet. We haven't resolved this. There still wasn't a marital settlement agreement. And she thought that ultimately Dan would be convinced to allow this to happen, even having won the court battle. So she tells Wendy, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pose these kids with you in front of a Catholic church. And that's going to become your Facebook profile picture. Uh, Dan's friends will start talking. He'll start hearing about it. We're going to enroll these kids in Christian camps. We're going to convert them to Catholicism. We're going to send Evites to your your wonderful ex's uh, family members up in Canada. We're going to invite them all to come to the baptism of the kids who are now going to become Catholic. And if all those things don't work, we'll bribe them with a million bucks. That all happened after the hearing was lost. You know, I mean, with me, you probably should start with a million bucks. Uh, that is probably more likely to get my attention. I, I'm going to step out on a limb and say none of that worked. The whole none of it happened. Okay, none of it happened. Okay, Wendy didn't do any of it. Much to Donna Adelson's frustration, Wendy did, said, "No, that's that's a bridge too far. I'm not willing to do those things." Which has to make you wonder whether Wendy was a participant in the murder plot when she didn't do those things. But you know, the the most important fact that you need to know is that two days after Dan dies. Everything that Wendy and Donna and Harvey and Charlie wanted all along happens. They're all in Tallahassee packing up Wendy's minivan, and she's hightailing at seven and a half hours with her family members in a caravan back to South Florida. It took two days from Dan's death for her to achieve what she failed to achieve through the court system. You know, grief, grief just just impacts different people differently, doesn't it? It just some people it just makes you want to go pack up the minivan and, and move your kids. To South Florida. Tell me about the murder. I, I found the murder fascinating on the one hand. I mean, people always talk. I mean, nothing ever stays a secret. And it seemed like you had at least three people who were pretty likely to squeal at some point. In yeah. I mean, I mean, when, when you're hiring, when you're trying to insulate yourself from a crime and you're hiring other people, your alibi, your ability to stay out of it is only as strong as your weakest leg. And the numbskulls that they got to commit this crime 
were pretty weak as far as leaks links went. Uh, so they got, well, let me, let me do it from the other way around. The investigators ultimately uncovered this plot through surveillance footage that got them to a vehicle that was following Dan the morning of the murder. It was a hybrid, Hitman in a hybrid. Yes, that's the book could have easily been entitled Hitman in a hybrid. By the way, the book is entitled Extreme Punishment, uh, which is a play on the fact that Dan was a punishment theory scholar. Um, but um, these guys were in a hybrid that they drove from Miami all the way up to Tallahassee. Uh, with, by the way, they were using their cell phones, pinging cell towers. Uh, they were caught on surveillance footage in multiple places. Um, the car itself had a tracking device in it from the rental company. So there are all of these clues. Uh, but the most significant one of all was when they finally got back to Miami the same day of the murder. One of them needed to get $40 from an ATM. So... They pulled up to an ATM back in South Florida and basically posed for the camera at the ATM and uh, investigators had everything they needed. Now, all this took two years to get to that point, pretty much, where they had all this information. But uh, the hitmen were were guys with lengthy rap sheets, never for murder, but really nasty guys. One of them was a member of the Latin Kings uh, um, gang in South Florida. He was Luis Rivera. He went by Tato. And his best friend since childhood was Sigfredo Garcia. He went by Tuto. Um, and what they found in the phone records for Tuto, Sigfredo Garcia, was this long stream of phone calls going back for a couple of years with one phone number. Um, and it turned out this was a woman who had been the baby mama for his two kids. And they had an on-again, off-again relationship. And amazingly enough, in July 2014, their relationship was off. And she'd been shacking up with a different guy during that time. That guy's name happened to be Charlie Cables. And whoever the cop was, whoever the FBI guy was who had that revelation that day, I would have loved to have been in his office when he was bouncing around saying, holy, you know what? I found the link. For folks who are not as familiar, uh, well, nobody's as familiar with his fact pattern as the prosecutor and the author of the book, Extreme Punishment. I have been following it. So just to let that sink in, three people are kind of involved. I think only one would be the trigger person, but three people, two men and a woman. The woman used to be in a relationship with one of the two killers. She's also formerly in a relationship with the brother of Wendy Adelson, Charlie, the dentist, right? Correct. The periodontist. He's not just a dentist. This guy's making upwards of three, three and a half million bucks a year. So, all right, this is where I got to stop you. I have three sisters. I try on their birthday to shoot them a text. I really do. I try. My wife's great about buying them something. I love them to death, but I'm not killing their ex-husbands for them. I mean, I'm, I'm probably not even cutting the grass for them. It depends. What in the world is there about Charlie Adelson's relationship with Wendy that he would kill her ex-husband or set it up? Charlie, from the time he was at least in dental school, he has an antisocial streak to him. He got into fights in dental school. Uh, he was uh, blackballed in dental school, almost not permitted to get his degree. Um, he was somebody who built himself up from a scrawny kid who was nicknamed Screech when he was in high school. He was in the gym a couple times a day, built himself up into a massive physical presence and loved guns. Um, he very interesting guy, but very antisocial and very willing to do whatever was necessary to get whatever he wanted and thought he could. He has uh, most people who know him would say that he definitely has a narcissistic personality disorder. And the notion that somebody like Dan Markell was going to restrict his kid sister from what she wanted to do. He wasn't going to let that happen, especially not with Donna chirping in his ear about how miserable Dan Markell was making them all. All right. So you've got Wendy. She does not do well in a court case. Kids are not going to be able to move. You got mom hatching a plan, which, again, to your point, to, to Wendy's credit, she did not buy into this plan about uh, religion and, and kind of his faux psychological warfare. But ultimately... Charlie Adelson, either current or former love interest, is involved with two other men in the murder for hire 
of Dan Markell on the day of the murder, tell us, I think there was some surveillance. They killed him actually back in his neighborhood, right? In the driveway. In his garage. He had just pulled into the garage. He had had a couple of phone calls. And it's interesting. One of those with his, was with his mom at, who, back in Toronto, Canada. And the other uh, was with a teacher at a charter school where behind his back, Wendy had gone into the lottery to try and enroll their oldest child, Benjamin, to wind up um, at that school. They were having a fight over where their oldest child was going to go to kindergarten. Wendy enrolled, at, or signed up for this lottery, got in, and Dan found out about it after the fact. He was on a trip to New York. He gets back, and he's really upset that this has happened. And a teacher from the school is calling him to basically extol the virtues of the school and is on the line with him when Dan is killed. You've already alluded to the time it took, you know, under the theory that most crimes are solved within a couple of days where they don't get solved. This one took a long time to solve. Well, let me, let me stop you there, because earlier I said two years. It took two years before anybody was charged. They, the FBI and the Tallahassee police had a fairly elaborate sting operation, so they could have charged the underlings earlier. But they wanted to get people talking. They wanted to rattle their cage by tickling the wire. And so what they did was they arranged a bump. And I'm sure as a former prosecutor, you know what that is. Um, they had some guy pretending to be a Latin King member just bump right into Donna Adelson just outside of the condo she was living in in Miami and tell her that um, his brother wasn't being taken care of. His brother was in jail. He was referring to Luis Rivera, who by that point was in jail on other crimes, um, and he didn't get the money that the Tuto and Katie, Katie Magbanawa is the woman we've been referring to, who was the sort of middle of the love triangle between Sigredo Garcia and Charlie Adelson, that Katie and Tuto had been taken care of, but his brother, he's sitting in a jail in Broward County and he hasn't gotten anything. She, he handed her a one-year remembrance article from a local Miami paper that on the back of it had the number $5,000 and a telephone number and shoved it at Donna Adelson and then walked away. And this was being surveilled by the FBI in a van from across the street. And the, the whole idea was to get Donna talking to Charlie, to get Charlie talking to Katie, to get Katie talking to Sigfredo Garcia. And that's exactly what happened. You had wiretaps on the phone of both Charlie Adelson and Katie Magbanawa. And every call over the next few days was monitored and a meeting between Katie Magdanawa and Charlie Adelson took place the very next day at a restaurant called Dolce Vita. And that meeting between the two of them is what ultimately led to Charlie Adelson's arrest just a year ago. All right. The two men, uh, did one plead guilty and cooperate and one go to trial or did they both? You're exactly right. That's exactly right. Luis Rivera, they were both facing the death penalty. They were both charged pretty close to one another. The only difference is Luis Rivera was in prison for all of his Latin King stuff. That finally bit him on the bottom and he was rounded up as part of a federal RICO case and he was already serving 12 years. Um, so he was already in prison when he was interviewed by investigators. Uh, Garcia was out on the loose, and um, eventually they decided it was time to arrest him and bring him in. Rivera saw the handwriting on the wall with the help. He actually had did not have enough money to hire an attorney, so one was provided for him, and ultimately they reached a deal that he was going to get seven and a half years tacked on to his existing federal sentence, and uh, he would squeal. He would tell everything he knew, and he did. And he implicated, obviously, Sigfredo Garcia, and he implicated Katie Magbenawa. Now, he talked about the murder having been done for the dentist and the dentist's family, but he was insulated. He didn't know who those people were. He didn't even know what Charlie Adelson's name was. He didn't even know Wendy Adelson's name because he was insulated. But he knew the basic structure of the plot from Sigfredo Garcia, and he knew it from Katie McBenoa. Any idea, not that it really matters legally, it might matter if you're in a death penalty prosecution who the it was it was a death penalty prosecution of um, both Sigfredo Garcia and Katie McDonald any idea who the trigger person was I'm guessing it wasn't Katie Sigfredo Garcia Katie wasn't there Katie Katie was simply uh, orchestrating things from from um, her home in Miami um, it was only Garcia and Rivera who made that trip in that hybrid in the Toyota Prius um, and the, the the proof at the first trial the one that convicted Sigfredo Garcia was that Garcia 
was the one to pull the trigger and put two bullets in Dan Markell's head. Because, of course, it was Luis Rivera who was providing that information. Oh, boy, that brings back bad memories, bad witnesses. Uh, but you know what? Rarely do you have Catholic nuns as your, as your, as your witnesses murder for hire cases. These rarely. guys were not Catholic nuns. Yeah, rarely. Uh, Katie, if I'm not mistaken, the, it was a hung jury the first time, was it not? That's correct. So, so the jury came back with their verdict against Garcia, finding him guilty. Um, on all counts, including murder in the first degree. Um, and the jury reported that they weren't able to make a decision. They got the Allen charge. The Allen charge didn't work. So the judge declared a mistrial. And that was in late 2019. And guess what happened in between then and the next trial? This little thing called COVID. So it took another two and a half years before she was tried again. Um, I think I read that the split was 10 to 2. Um, to get it was, and I interviewed the jury, the jury that hung, and there's a whole um, the chapter in my book is called Civic Duty about what happened with this one juror. Um, and it's very clear that this one juror was all about these kids. We didn't talk about this yet, but there were two kids born to Secreto Garcia and Katie McBanawa. And this one juror couldn't lose sight of the fact that these two kids were going to grow up without parents. And she didn't want to have any part of that. She had a tough time voting to convict Secreto Garcia. But she was darn sure not going to convict the mother of those two children as well. Even though she basically bought into the evidence, she didn't buy it into enough to be a guilty vote. And so for the next two and a half years, uh, Katie continued to sit in jail where she basically was holding a get out of free jail card since day one. She was told, all you need to do is tell us what happened and we might even arrange for you to get out. And she never did. So she never cooperated. She went back for that second trial and was convicted. And and because I, I, I thought I read somewhere where she was transported to be a witness after she was convicted and sentenced to a first degree murder. Yes. November of 2022, she was transported from her prison cell to Leon County uh, to talk with prosecutors, which she did four times. And those proper statements are under seal. There's only a handful of people who know what she said. We'll learn more about that at the trial of Charlie, Charlie Adelson this fall. All right. So Charlie Adelson, the periodontist, the brother of Wendy Adelson, has not been to trial, which is not unusual. You want to flip people and get them you know, willing to, to cooperate. So I, I do understand that. And I guess factually, it's probably the more tenuous case. It's not. I mean, let me push back. No, thanks. So. You don't think so, so? So the reason he was arrested in April 2022, which is going on eight years after this crime was committed, was because in the intervening two and a half years between trial one and trial two, Georgia Kappelman, the lead prosecutor who's done a fabulous job on this case, she absolutely had to get the audio from the conversation between Katie McBenawa and Charlie Adelson the day after the bump. That audio was very garbled. It was in a restaurant. It was hard to understand what either was saying. Uh, there were two FBI agents sitting at the table across from theirs, both with video and sound capabilities. And you couldn't understand what they were saying. In the first trial, they played one minute of it. And it was only to show the jury, we don't know what they said. But in the intervening time period, and you'll like this because you're a South Carolinian, they found a guy from South Carolina named Keith McElveen, who spent a decade with the CIA, and his whole thing was enhancing sound quality of recorded conversations. He had a dozen patents. His, he's trying to make money on wearable hearing aids because being able to pick, pick individual voices out of crowds is so difficult, and he's created all these different technologies and they finally find this guy, and this guy is able to take 41 minutes of the hour-plus conversation between Katie and Charlie and get it to the point where you can pretty much hear every word Charlie says. And Charlie is saying things like, why didn't they know it was me? Uh, this was such big news. It was on BBC. It was on Good Morning America. And Katie's sitting there the whole time, not running away, not saying, what the hell are you talking about? They're talking about how to deal with the fact that they're being shaken down for money and what to do about it. And Charlie's talking about the murder in a public restaurant. And it's funny, at one point he says, you know, these days, you know, there's a lot of surveillance around. Look at the camera up there. 
look at it over there, you know, and he's literally spilling his guts. And in my view, um, what he talks about is tantamount to a confession. He's pretty much admitting to knowing all the intricate details of how the murder went down, including a rental car, including a money drop. Uh, he asked Katie at one point, when you were there the next day with the money, what happened? Uh, well, I mean, what else could he be talking about other than the money that was delivered that Luis Rivera testified he received the next day in his apartment? Well, for those at home wondering what the life of a very prominent law professor, a father, a son, what is the going rate to kill somebody? $100,000. Well, so one hundred. And they split it three ways. So Charlie is in custody awaiting trial. He's not, a, he's not on bond, right? They had a bond hearing and the judge was polite enough not to last. Okay. Now, this is where it gets dicey. I think you'll agree this never would have happened without Charlie Adelson, right? Correct. But they're not probably seeking the death penalty on him, I would not imagine, are they? They're not, and I'm not sure why not. If you were going after the sort of the low-hanging fruit, Sigfredo Garcia with the death penalty, I understand he's the one who put two bolts in Denmark Hill's head, according to Rivera. Why wouldn't you go after the ringleader, the mastermind, the guy without whom this never would have happened? Uh, but they're not. They're not seeking the death penalty. Because you can't get it. Because you're not going to get it on a period honest with no criminal record. And I, I, I look, I. And that's fine with the Markell family because one of Dan Markell's most well-known writings was a screed about the death penalty. So Dan Markell's family has never been about the death penalty. They've been about justice. More of my interview with Stephen Epstein is next. How has Dan Markell's family been able to keep any semblance of patience or confidence in the system given how long? And again, you, you mentioned the pandemic. You mentioned, look, it's more important to get it right than to get it quick. But I cannot imagine the patience required with the cops and the prosecutors given the amount of time this has taken. There's been tons of handholding. They have a great victims advocate um, system in Leon County, in Florida generally. Uh, but they've had lots of access to Georgia Kaplan, to the investigators of the Tallahassee Police Department, to the lead investigator from the FBI, to the lead agent from the FBI. Those they become like family to the Markells, and I think that's helped a lot. Is that they know they want to get this right and they want justice. It's not like they're being brushed off by all the people who are trying to solve this crime and put people behind bars. They're not. They've been handheld the whole way, and it's become sort of a group effort. And I think that's helped a lot for people like Ruth Markell, Dan's mom, and Phil Markell, Dan's um, dad. Do you have a sense that all the arrests that are going to be made have been made? I have a sense that the answer to that question is no. You may not can answer this. I'm kind of reading between the lines. I'm guessing Wendy... Adelson is not going to be charged. We should leave the last one to be charged. Um, I think Donna would be the next to be charged. Donna was the, the, the subject of the bomb. Donna has all of these emails talking about how much she hated Dan and wanted to do all these extreme things to make him finally capitulate um, and was urging Wendy to do those things. Um, if you listen to some of the... the um, the back and forth between um, Charlie and Donna on the telephone right after the bomb. The very first one, uh, Charlie is trying to find out, what, what is this, Mom? What are you talking about? Who does this involve? Does it involve Wendy? And Donna says, no, the two of us. He says, what? He says, she says, the two of us. I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so, I mean, Donna's words, um, both on paper and email and during a lot of the wiretap calls are extremely incriminating. Um, and it just makes perfect sense knowing everything one knows about Donna Adelson, as I certainly learned researching the book, that Donna had her fingerprints, as I said earlier, all over what happened in Dan's garage. Um, there is not really any solid evidence of Wendy's involvement. Um, so all of the different phone, you know, phone numbers, pings, all of those things just not there for Wendy, other than that she was the primary beneficiary of being able to move out of the home that she didn't want to remain in Tallahassee and move to South Florida. Um, and Wendy has professed her innocence, not only all along to anybody who's asked, but under oath twice um, at uh, two different trials. Granted, she had use immunity at the time she was testifying, 
but she didn't have to testify at either trial. I mean, she certainly could have asserted her Fifth Amendment rights not to testify at all, and she didn't. Now, a lot of that was trying to look good and look like she was trying to be helped. So it wasn't all, you know, I had nothing to do with this. It was trying to look like, why would I be taking the witness stand if I was somehow involved in it? She doesn't believe her brother had anything to do with it. If you believe what she says, she doesn't believe her family was involved at all. And she believes this is all a big witch hunt to get her and her family. So her position is that three people completely unconnected with the family were so distraught at the fact that she didn't, wasn't going to be able to do what she wanted to with her kids that they just kind of intervened and decided to kill her, kill her ex-husband. Well, that gets to, you know, how is Charlie's defense lawyer, Dan Rashbaum, who's a good defense lawyer, how, what, how's he going to play this? And a lot of people think they're going to think, well, Katie sort of knew what was going on with the family. She knew how upset everybody was with Dan and she was dating Charlie. And so she sort of missed Charlie's signals and she got these guys to go up there and do it for Charlie's and ultimately Wendy's benefit, but not because anybody was pulling her strings. Now, how you explain the $100,000 they wound up with, that's a hard one. Yeah, that one's hard. All right. You've litigated for, what, three decades? Yeah. There's a big difference between what we know and what we can prove. Uh, I used to tell cops all the time. I mean, I don't doubt you're right, but I can't prove it. How in the world could you prosecute Donna without some help from Charlie, which you're not going to get? You're not going to get a son helping on a mom. So how do they loop her in without that bridge being crossed, the Charlie Bridge? You have to, again, you have to go back to her emails um, and how much before the murder she wanted Dan out of the picture. And then the conversations that she had with Charlie after the bump, um, where she literally says it was the two of us. Because okay. involves the two of us you know, sort of paint the whole picture um, so that a jury is going to understand circumstantially what what this whole thing is about. And I think you can get there. All right. I will let you go with two more questions. Jeffrey LaCasse or LaCasse? LaCasse. Look, you've forgotten more about this case than I'll ever know, but it sounded like his testimony was that he recalled Wendy saying something that Wendy did not recall saying. Well, so Wendy in her police interview, which was five and a half hours the day of Dan's um, shooting, um, talked about the fact that her brother, Charlie, always made bad jokes. She was having a TV repaired that very morning. And so she was telling the investigator, Craig Isom, he'd make this bad joke that the TV was a divorce present because it was cheaper than hiring a hitman. She said that multiple times during uh, the five and a half hour interview the day of the shooting. Um, but Jeff Lacoste went further and said that at the time of the relocation hearing, right around that time when he was dating Wendy, Wendy said words to the effect that she had that her brother had actually looked into hiring it, man, and that it was going to cost about $15,000. He couldn't remember. She either said $50,000 or $15,000, but that Charlie had confided in her and she was confiding in him, Jeff Lacoste, why she would be confiding that in him. I don't know. But she was confiding in her boyfriend that uh, Charlie had looked into hiring a hitman to take care of Dan. All right. When is Dr. Charlie's trial this fall? It's currently scheduled for October 30th. First day of trial is supposed to be October 30th. I think it was set for the spring and it was content. Was it correct? Uh, Correct. Yeah. At the request of the defense, they were just drinking from a fire hose. I mean, there's many hundreds of wiretap calls, surveillance footage, just you know, and then there are two trials and the transcripts from two lengthy trials. Uh, now four proffer statements from Katie McDonough. Uh, there were probably about a hundred depositions taken between the first two trials. I mean, these lawyers just worked this case up big time. And you, know, you got to ask, like, how did these lawyers get paid to work? They were being paid by Katie McDonough. Wow. All right. Two more questions. All right. It seems to me not to be uh, my normal cynical self, but Professor Wendy Edelson got exactly what she wanted. Uh, I'm not saying she wanted her ex-husband dead, but uh, the kids' names have been changed. Yes. They, they've moved. Mm-hmm. Um, her, her mom's able to help out however much she wants. She was clerking for a federal judge immediately after these events for two years on the 11th Circuit. 
and daycare other than going to their preschool was mom. Well, so can Dan Markell's parents see the kids? Uh, Dan Markell's parents didn't see the kids for six years. And it was only the pendency of Katie, the, the impendency of Katie McDonald's trial in May of 2022 that led to a phone call or email from Wendy basically saying, we're going to have an early bar mitzvah for Benjamin. He wasn't 13 yet. He was still months away from being 13. We're going to have an early bar mitzvah and we, we want you all to come. Uh, and that eventually turned into just a visit at a restaurant at a South Florida mall. But Phil and, and uh, Ruth, for the very first time in six years, got to see their grandkids. And the reason that happened is because of the first trial, Wendy had to admit that she hadn't permitted Dan's parents to see the kids. She was being cross-examined like, no, she had, she wouldn't allow that because she was so afraid these grandparents were going to steal the kids or put them in foster care or something crazy like that. So that was the first of what has turned into less than a handful of visits in the last nine years, basically. Boy, you're a family law expert. I guess grandparents just don't have any like real legal rights when it comes, even when your kid is dead, you just have no rights. Thanks to Ruth Markell in the state of Florida, they've got more rights because Ruth Markell lobbied for a grandparents' rights bill that passed the legislature and was signed into law last summer by Governor DeSantis. But in order to take advantage of that, the, the biological child that remains following a murder has to be even either proven liable in a wrongful death case or convicted of the crime. And because Wendy, neither of those has happened to Wendy, Wendy is still the gatekeeper of those kids and gets to decide when, if, when, and for how long Dan's parents get to visit with their grandchildren. Unless and until they decide to pursue a civil remedy with a, with a much lower burden of proof. Correct. Which they've chosen not to do, consciously chosen not to do. They're, they've been walking this tightrope for all these years. How do we, They initially got to see their grandkids in between 2014 when this crime occurred and 2016 when the first arrests were made. They got to see their kids fairly, their grandkids fairly frequently. They had a place and they, they were frequently in South Florida, as many Canadians are during their cold winter months. And Wendy did accommodate during those first couple of years. But everything changed once the arrest started and Wendy believed they were going to try and put the kids in foster care. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I guess I made really bad grades in family law. I did not know you went from the mother having exclusive custody straight to foster care. I thought there were like some steps you go through before you get that, like like other family members or. There was a letter. So there was a letter that unfortunately was part of um, discovery that was produced. So the media eventually got a hold of a letter that um, Ruth Markell was an email between Ruth Markell, one of the agencies down there about what would happen if and that what would happen if included everybody named Adelson is taken into custody. What would happen immediately? We live in Toronto, Canada. Will something be done to take care of these kids? And that was disclosed as part of discovery and ultimately wound up being reported on. And um, I mean, Georgia Kaplan actually feel horrible about that because that was released. Uh, I, I take it back. It wasn't part of discovery. It was part of what was released as part of the Sunshine Laws in Florida. And so that got released. And when Wendy found out about that, that became the excuse not to allow um, Phil and Ruth Markell to have visitation with their grandkids. Will you be present at the trial this fall? I will not. I was present at the one. I'm, I was present at the middle trial. That one was, I was there for a week. I didn't even get to see Wendy testified. And if you didn't know, Wendy wore the exact same clothing in trial number two as she wore in trial number one. And if people ask, why did she do that? For the reason that she got me. I was actually not there. So I was trying to find on YouTube her testimony. And I, when I found her wearing that dress, I was like, oh, that's from the first trial. And for about 10 minutes, I was like, I can't find it until I realized, oh, no, no, no. Look at the date. She's wearing the same clothing. That tells you something about her. Yeah, I'm not sure what. Um, it, no, I will not be there. The book is done. If I do anything further, it will be an afterward. I'll let the newspaper reporters of the Tallahassee Democrat uh, 2020 dateline. There are more of those episodes in the works. They'll, they'll tell the rest of the story really, really well. All right. So back to you. You still practice law? I do. Full time? Yes. Um, how do you decide whether a true crime is worthy of you 
putting your life on hold and writing about it? It's just a gut thing. If, if something had really spoken to me in all three of the stories that I've written, there was something about them that spoke to me. I feel compelled to write about it. And that's at the end of the day, if that serves a purpose, that's for others to decide. But it's really just the story connect with me. And do I feel like I want to commit much of my life to writing about it? And for the three stories that I wrote, the answer was yes. Has, has another one hit you since then? So I'm going right back to where we started about the, how, how many hours it takes to write a true crime. And I've decided that my next book is going to be crime fiction. It's a lot less grueling a process to try and chase every fact down and pull every hair out as you're doing it. I am so happy to hear you say that because that actually is my last question. Why would you not write where you can make stuff up? And nobody nobody can go back and say, hey, look, I looked at the transcript and Wendy didn't actually say this. She said something else. I mean, you can make it up. I actually lose sleep over those tiny little details. Like somebody's going to say that that little detail was right. I had that happen where people have pointed out these minute little details that I didn't get exactly right. And it bucks the crap out of me. That won't happen in fiction. So you think that you, just like I am pivoting away from self-help, I am pivoting to psychological crime dramas. You are going to pivot away from true crime to stuff you make up. If that works, and that remains to be seen, if I can actually publish a book and sell a book, that's the direction I'm going. And I'm, I'm writing one right now. Good for you. Well, this one, you pick a, a fascinating it is so rare to have defendants. I mean, I hate to say of that stature, that sounds terrible, but you know what I mean? You just usually don't have lawyers and dentists on the defendant side of state of Florida versus you just usually don't have that. But and then Dan Mark Hill, the victim, just gets so lost in, in all of this. All right. Extreme punishment. And that is based on Dan Markell's aversion to the death penalty. That's how you came up with the title? Because he was a punishment theory scholar. And in fact, his, uh, his, his, his niche was retributivist legal theory. So it was all about getting the proportionality of the punishment to fit the crime. And because what happened to Dan, as you have indicated, was far beyond what was necessary for the Adelson family to achieve their objective, what happened to Dan was, in his words, an extreme punishment. Yeah, it's it's hard to get any worse. Uh, I, I, I just, I cannot imagine what motivates people, number one, to think that this is okay, or number two, to think that I'm going to be able to get away with it. It, it just, uh, anything that involves more than one person knowing about it, it usually does not turn out all that well. So where can folks get, your this is your third true crime book, right? It is. And Amazon would be the best place. All right. I cannot thank you enough. I, I could I started to say I could talk to you all day. I'm sure it feels like I have been talking to you all day and you got clients to bill and all that other stuff. So I can't wait to see where your mind takes you when you are on hamstrung by the facts. You can go wherever you want to go. So when that day comes, if Fox has not fired me yet, and there's 50-50 chance they will, but if they haven't, you come back on and tell us about your new book. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me, Trey. All right. You take care. Best of luck to you. Thanks so much. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.